Well, good evening, and welcome to episode 0000176 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, I'm going to be your host through to 8 o'clock this evening, broadcasting to you from World Triple R headquarters at the end of the 96 line, which of course is on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Also pay my respects to... Vaughny for an excellent three hours of double bounce. He'll be back next Tuesday, bringing it to us once again. He can go home tonight. There'll be no shenanigans after uh, 8 p.m. Like there was an ultra fluidy last week, which was a lot of fun. Great way to close out Radiothon for several of us broadcasters. Go back and listen on rrr.org.au if you want to listen to a pretty fun show. Now, I'm um, forewarning, we have a uh, pretty heavy show this evening, and much of it relates to the way First Nations women are treated in this society of ours. An alarming stat came out last week that indicated that First Nations women are eight times more likely to be murdered than non-First Nations women. Uh, Matters like these are often described as an Aboriginal problem, but they ain't. The fact that we have Aboriginal women being murdered at significantly higher rates than non-Aboriginal women and suffering forms of violence, domestic, uh, street violence, violence at the hands of authorities, that's not an Aboriginal problem, that's a societal issue and something that we as a whole and only us as a whole can actually address. And it's a complex issue. It's There's so many various layers to it. There's institutional racism, there's intergenerational trauma, there's systemic racism. There's the colonial construct which was created without having First Nations people in mind in any way, shape or form. There was terra nullius after all, which said that this continent now known as Australia was uninhabited by anyone. Thankfully, that was reversed in recognition in the High Court of Australia through the Mabo High Court case. But there is still so much work to be done. And from my perspective, it comes down to, and I've said this before, the the value that this society of ours places on the lives of Aboriginal people. Uh, We are dying at faster rates. We continue to die in custody at the hands of authorities. No one is brought to justice on that. There are hearings, there's coronial inquests, but nothing seems to change or happen. So we need some attitudes to significantly change in this place. And that's a national conversation that we need to continue to have day in, day out. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, then perhaps you're a convert. And hopefully this show enables you to go away and speak to friends and families with some sort of informed um, viewpoint on some of these matters. Every conversation helps. Uh, Every audience that you speak to, if they're open, uh, can be changed or they can be steered in the right direction. And that's what this show is about. So I thank you for listening and I thank you to those who have uh, subscribed. So along those lines, um, as I just discussed, uh, shortly I'll play an interview uh, from earlier this afternoon with Western Australian Green Senator Dorinda Cox. Uh, she sits on the Senate committee that is looking into the murder and disappearance of Aboriginal women and children. So I'll play that interview with her shortly. 
And in the second half of the show, Sarah Schwartz from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service will come on and discuss with us a notable letter that has been penned to the Premier, Daniel Andrews, requesting the appointment of a police ombudsman. You may have seen in the news today that there are significantly troubling reports about the way police investigate themselves and how IPAC, the broad-based anti-corruption authority here in Victoria, has referred those matters back to police to investigate themselves. And it's a classic example of why we need a an oversight body, an oversight authority, an ombudsman is what um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and a whole range of other agencies are asking for. Um, that will be in itself a mechanism that stops police investigating police. So we'll speak to Sarah in the second half of the show. Um, look, if you want to engage in the conversation or have any questions or queries, there is a text line, 0466981027, 0466981027. But for now, you're listening to the mission on 102.7 3 FM. Here's the buddy guy. Thank you, Samuel. It is ten past seven this Tuesday evening. Listen to the mission on one hundred two point seven three Triple R FM. Now, to tonight's first guest, um, Senator Dorinda Cox is a Yamaji Nunga woman with a strong record of working for social justice in her community, locally, globally, and nationally. Uh, she's a mother of two daughters and a small business owner. She has over twenty years' experience working in government and non-government sectors. Has made contributions to policy and advocacy in the areas of domestic violence, child protection and Aboriginal justice. I spoke to her earlier this afternoon from my uh, ivory tower in Radio City Docklands. Uh, we spoke about the inquiry into the missing and murdered First, First Nations women, which is a parliamentary inquiry that she is a part of, along with people like uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe. Um, just want to tell you right now, if you're waiting for a, a new LaRue question, a LaRue statement question, there is no such question. Um, this is not a gotcha show. This is a show that likes to explore significant issues in step and in depth. So... Um, Stick around, listen to the interview. I start by asking the Senator uh, what it's like being in Parliament. She's a relatively new parliamentarian, a new Senator. She's been there for just either just under or just over 12 months now. So we start the conversation off with that. Speak to you shortly. Senator Dorinda Cox, welcome to the mission. Thank you very much. Now, you've been in Parliament now for pretty much a year um, I asked Senator Thorpe the same question after she'd been in politics, federal politics, that is, for about a year. Um, how are you finding the rough and tumble of uh, life in Canberra? Well, um, obviously, uh, travelling from the West Coast, it's a, it's a, an extra struggle, yeah. the additional labour of having to get from, from Perth across to Canberra. But I'm thoroughly enjoying the work and uh, learning uh, more and more about politics every day and, and the work of um, how we can influence the democracy in our country. So it's a, it's a very exciting job that I'm very humbled and very privileged to do. Uh, on behalf of West Australians, um, and um, yeah, continuing to to listen and learn and make sure that I take uh, their voices into uh, Parliament and and more so into uh, Canberra, so that uh, they're not so far removed. Yeah, it's um, it's a very hefty responsibility, that's for sure. What, what surprised you the most about 
about the Senate and Parliament more generally? What's taken you aback the most? I think the, the level of formality. I think that people uh, only see glimpses of what um, what's shown in the media mm. or what you may see on the internet uh, are just grabs or glimpses of, of the federal parliament and that there's lots of formality, there's lots of learning, uh, there are lots of rules <laughs> about what we can can and can't do. Um, and, and I'm learning that in a different way as well. So I'm the temporary um, chair of committees, which means that I am learning the procedural part of the parliament. Uh, and that was a personal choice that I wanted to learn more about how politics works so that I could use it to my best advantage. Um, and uh, that's the thing that struck me the most is the standing orders and knowing about how convention works and knowing the formal parts of business and the hard markers and when you when you stop business and you recommence. So there is a lot of that stop starting, mm. but also there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of working together. Uh, there is a lot of um, wanting to get to the same outcome on behalf of Australians. And I think that's the goodwill of politicians in the Australian Parliament currently is that we're all working towards a common goal and that's on behalf of the people that we represent or that voted for us or elected us during the um, into the 47th Parliament. I guess it's kind of a language all of its own, isn't it, parliamentary language? It's just a, a different dialect that um, would be foreign to, to most Australians if um, they were exposed to it, eh? Absolutely. And I, you know, really welcome people to come and sit in the public gallery. If you ever get the opportunity to come to Canberra, sit in the public gallery and watch question time, watch some of the debates that happen, um, because you'll get a, a deeper sense of um, of the power of democracy in our country and the power of you as a constituent, uh, how you can use that to um, to advocate for change and, and advocate for a thing that you're passionate about. I've I've been to to Parliament House a few times and I've been to Question Time and I've been you know just during um, normal sittings as well, and what you get by being there live is that you get a, a better understanding of actually how much collaboration actually takes place across party lines in, in in the joint that you just don't get from television from from the from the rectangle box that you see at any given time. There's um a lot more collaboration within the Parliament than I guess the the broader community would probably know from just watching it on telly. Absolutely. And I think one of the most exciting parts of, of our work as senators and, in, and being in the Senate is our committee work that we do across party lines, as you say. Uh, and we get to sit with other um, other senators and we get to ask questions, we get to inquire, um, we get to genuinely get to an understanding of a particular issue. And I think the committee work is what essentially brings us in that negotiating space quite well, but also helps us to develop relationships and to actually collaborate when we need to or when we're called upon to do the work that is really, really important to Australians. Okay, so well, speaking of uh, committee work, in your maiden speech, you called for an inquiry into violence against First Nations women, um, and to you made the speech on uh, to mark International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and you tabled a motion to have the Legal and Constitutional uh, Affairs Reference Committee investigate and report on the missing and murdered First Nations women. Um, and it received unanimous support. Since then, there's been an election. Um, but very pleased to see that the inquiry has been readopted by the new parliament. 
what what are you hoping the inquiry will find out over the next twelve months or so? Yeah, um, yeah, we have had a, an unprecedented um, level of support. So I just want to put that on the record, very, very uh, upfront, and and um, the now opposition government um, uh, and and Labor when they were in opposition. Um, wholeheartedly supported this as just the crossbench. Um, what this inquiry does, it's, it's the first one in Australia's history. And um, I have done a substantial amount of work. In fact, I travelled to Canada in 2019 and met with the Native Women's Association in Canada. What struck me the most on that trip was the resounding resemblance in the stories that and experiences that I heard from women, uh, First Nations women in Canada, that were much like my own experiences and other what people have told me in community. Um, and speaking to um, the Royal Mounted Police in um, in Canada, uh, some of the similarities, I'm an ex-police officer of eight and a half years, so I have some of the more intimate knowledge around some of the practice uh, that we do in relation to some of these cases. So I have a deep passion. I also, and in my um, co-signing the motion with Senator Lydia Thorpe, both of us talked about our personal experience in losing cousins who had been murdered. So we have um, both an appreciation of the personal um, journey through the justice system in particular and what that means around honouring most women's lives, and that's part of the terms of reference, um, but also for children, and we've broadened the scope to children to incorporate some of our missing and murdered children in relation to that as well. What we hope the inquiry will do is, one, give us some nationally harmonised data. Um, we don't currently have any of that. We have pieces of research that, in an ad hoc way, provide a bit of a picture of the unacceptable um, rates of violence against uh, Indigenous women or First Nations women and children in this country, um, particularly in relation to homicide cases and missing persons cases. So what we hope is that this will result in somewhere where we can actually find an actual accurate picture and figures that will allow us to understand the magnitude of the problem. Mm. Um, right now, all we have is media reports um, and to go by 150 in research or 151 that has been outlined by Associate Professor, Professor Kylie Cripps versus um, our our own investigation, and I did that alongside um, ABC reporter, um, former ABC reporter Sarah Collard, of 76 um, women uh, who had been murdered um, or had gone missing. Uh, we hadn't even started on the children yet. So these are, are really alarming uh, issues in relation to structure. Yeah. So when we don't have data that gives us a, a good national picture, we absolutely need that as a first priority. The second part is in these particular cases, we need to find out how we can investigate, how we can make sure families are being supported uh, at the front end of um of these particular cases and what their experiences have been. So we hope that this is partly truth-telling but also part of the honouring of those women and children's lives in relation to um, the 
as I said, unacceptable levels, but also the disparity in the way that they are reported in the media and also the way that we, um, you know, provide vigils or other ceremonial type uh, events that remember the loss of their lives or the fact that we don't have any answers in relation to missing persons. So um, there's a there's a lot of work within the terms of reference of this committee, um, which we hope will um, bring some some really um, great recommendations to the fore that will actually have and implement um, change and and provide action for governments. It's such important work, and you know, so much of the work of this committee will, will be going to systemic issues. I would imagine, and um, the work is really important because getting that overall snapshot of you know, what Aboriginal women are confronting and children are confronting when it comes to being victims of, of, of violence um, and, and in a lot of cases actually murdered. It's um, really important for us to understand how many people are actually confronting this sort of violence and at what rates they're confronting yeah. And I mean, we already have some of those functions and, and, and what we need to do is bolster those. So we know that uh, there is there are state-based um, and territory-based ombudsmen who um, monitor um, family violence homicide in particular. And so what I want to say is that we, we need to lift that to a Commonwealth level and yeah. we need the Commonwealth ombudsman to be armed with both an independent uh, mandate for that, but also being able to collect the data. What we want to move away from is not just monitoring anymore, but actually prevention. Because if we continue to talk about just monitoring these cases, we're not working in a primary prevention way where we can target the triggers or the causal factors in relation to preventing some of these deaths, but also understanding in some of these cases what is best practice in relation to missing persons. Um, so is it within the first 72 hours of a person going missing? Um, and not being dismissive in, in some of the more stereotyping around, oh, that person may have just gone walkabout. So these are some of the really critical things that I know anecdotally I've heard over my um, lifetime and in my career um, that I I know families will want to come and talk to the Senate committee about um, in relation to their experiences. And I think it's really critical that, and I um, and I applaud the chair of the um, Legal and Constitutional uh, Affairs References Committee, um, Paul Scar, who... Um, who has taken this in a very measured way and um, and we've had a couple of private briefings from, from experts in the field um, and the chair in particular has taken those um, suggestions on board and we are thinking now um, uh, about how we work a little bit differently in this committee. So uh, I want to say that the influence of having um, Senator Thorpe and myself um, and others um, uh, Senator um, Jacinta uh, Napajinda Price from um, the Northern Territory is also participating in this committee. Uh, having uh, First Nations or Indigenous women as part of this process helps us to do this in a culturally informed and culturally safe way um, that will hopefully allow people to share some of those really important experiences and stories that we need to hear. That that cultural sensitivity is just so important because some of these stories are just so harrowing for 
uh, victims and, and the families of victims and, and knowing that there is that cultural sensitivity there is really, really important to make sure that people get to the truth of, of their stories. Um, people have the opportunity to submit to the inquiry until the um, 11th of November. Is that just a case of going to the um, uh, Australian Parliamentary House website and submitting from there, or is there another process Absolutely. in place? No, they can contact the Secretariat. So there are written submissions, but we're also encouraging people, as we did in the Northern Australian Committee um, into the Jilkin Caves uh, yeah. report, um, to submit in different ways as well. So whether it's through song, poetry, artwork, there are many different mechanisms um, in which people can share their story. And I think that that's really powerful, particularly when we're talking about First Nations people who want to... Um, who, who may not be able to put some of this into words. Yeah. So let's be honest, some of, as you as you already identified, it's some of these stories are so harrowing, are so traumatic for families and communities that there may need to be an alternate way in which they um, provide to the committee um, their interpretation of their experience. So we're very open to that and the Secretariat is available to accept them in a different format. Um, so I would be urging people to contact the Secretariat to understand what those submissions uh, look like. I've already seen a couple of videos of women's stories mm -hmm. uh, about themselves and communities. And so I think that they're particularly powerful when we empower our communities to tell their stories in a way that is acceptable, a yarn or in a storytelling way that is culturally safe for them, um, which will allow us to then go back to some of the key themes in this and providing um, the final report, which might be until the 31st of July 2023. So we have uh, a good amount of time yeah. in comparison to, to the Canadian one. We, you know, they had four years of their um, inquiry. Uh, we won't have that length of time unless we get an extension. Um, committee have already spoken about that um, because we understand that we are going to have to go slow into some of these communities and work with some of these families in order to prevent that re-traumatisation uh, of these um, these particular experiences. And so it is the committee's responsibility to make sure we do this in the right way. I'm speaking with uh, Senator Dorinda Cox and we're talking about the Legal and Constitutional Affairs Reference Committee investigation into missing and murdered First Nations women. Um I guess the headline that's come out this week, Senator, has been around the rates in which First Nations women are being murdered. And the committee found that that rate at the moment is eight times that of non-First Nations people. Now, there's so many layers to peel back on that. But um, what, what do you make of, of that sort of startling revelation? Well, I think that um, in some areas and what we've heard over many, many years going back as, as early as the, the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Task Force report back in, I think it was 1994 or 96, um, that we've heard the, um, you know, the, the unacceptable rates of, of women violence against Indigenous women in this country. And I think in 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 Park, having you know that eight times um, more likely to be murdered is 
is significant and should be very startling to the Australian public that this in 2022, we still have this resounding problem that exists in our communities and that we all have a responsibility to make sure that we are working in a prevention way to stop women being murdered in some of these circumstances because we should have an intervention process. We should have a mechanism for education. We should have better investment into community-led solutions. And we should be working not just with women, but also with men and our younger generation in order to make sure that in a generation we can turn this around, if not sooner. So I, I think that what what that figure tells me is that um, it should be a wake-up call. It should be a day of reckoning for Australia to say we have a problem and we are all going to work together to fix this problem. I think that's the the heart of it, uh, Senator, is that once we recognise that this isn't an Aboriginal problem, it's an Australian problem, it's a societal issue and the way that we've established our systems and practices in this place that have led in part to so many of these murders and missing children and, and, and women... Once we understand that as a, as a nation, then we can actually start to work together to address and hopefully get some solutions to all this. Absolutely. And I think at the heart of that, as I said before, is truth-telling and understanding at a very macro level what um, Australia's journey has been up until now through its colonial experience, but also some of the issues that are still being perpetuated through our systems. So I think this is a... Is it should be a, um, a an indication to those in power, and I hope that those in power are listening, um, because we need to make sure that we are working with our grassroots communities, with the people who have um, been working in frontline services who who need some assistance. And you know, I can't tell you how many inquiries my office gets uh, in relation to um, you know the sheer number of uh, you know removal of our, our discontinuing of funding and um, the lack of uptake because of the geographical size of their service areas. It's all of those things mm. um, that I am hearing on a constant basis, which now as part of a decade under a previous regime of government, we need to turn around. And I think the urgency is there. And I think having an indication that we are eight times more likely to be murdered uh, as First Nations women is an indication that we need our government to act at a Commonwealth level to provide that leadership, but we also need to bring the states and territories along in that as well in creating action plans and actually executing them with the adequate resources that they need. Well, it is no small task, Senator, and I, I wish you well, and um, it would be great to have you back on later in the process to to talk about some of the other revelations and, and findings and hopefully recommendations that, that come out of this uh, committee, it's really important work. We're in a situation of, of crisis, and I just want to acknowledge that the, the the trauma that it can play on committee members too, hearing these stories uh, day in day out, and I think that needs to be um, acknowledged as well. So I thank you very much for coming on the show, and um, I hope to speak with you in the future. Excellent, thank you very much, and um, yes, I hope to to provide some of those updates uh, as we move along with this uh, committee process. So thank you again. 
Thelma Plum there with the Brown Snake. It is 24 to 8 on the mission, 102.73 Triple RFM. You're listening or maybe you're listening on rrr.org.au or perhaps you're listening in the future via the podcast. Go to your favourite podcast catcher to subscribe and like. And if you're listening via the National Indigenous Radio Service, welcome wherever you may be in this big, big, big land of ours. Now, before I um, cross to speak to uh, Sarah Schwartz from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, I just wanted to alert you to a fundraiser that is happening as we speak online. Um, many of you would be aware of the protests that are happening in Iran at the moment over the treatment of women. The demonstrations were sparked by the death of a 22-year-old Masha Amini, a young Iranian Kurdish woman while in the custody of Iran's morality police. Um, there has been some very intense scenes and the bravery of women in Iran at the moment standing up against what is a very oppressive regime has been something to behold. So there's actually a um, fundraiser that is online at the moment. It's called Jinjian Azadi Poetry Fundraiser. That is Kurdish for Women, Life and Freedom. Um, many of uh, some of our best uh, poets and, and writers uh, are actually online reading poetry and some of their writings um, around these issues to provide much-needed support and fundraising for the Lotus Flower, which, of course, if you don't know, is an organisation which provides women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement with the tools and opportunity that they need to build their lives. And the way they do that is they actually park themselves in refugee camps where there are displaced women and girls and they have a whole range of programs that help them get their lives back on track. So it's a very, very worthy cause. And if you want to hear readings by, uh, let's just pull out some names here, Lahee Seem, Leah Lois, Jay Hamid Bashir, Bashir, sorry, Tina Cartwright, uh, Holly Mason... They're all online now. If you want to go to that, go to events at humantickets.com and basically search for Gian Asadi Poetry Fundraiser. They've raised a total of $400 at the moment, and I know that the Triple R audience can help them raise a whole lot more than that. So once again, it's events.humantix.com, and if you just do a search for uh, Poetry Fundraiser, that would, should be able to get you to the right destination. Uh, the tickets are $5. So go on, um, support a great cause, and here's some great writing from some great people. I'm going to play a quick track now, and we'll get back to the show as per usual when we're speaking to Sarah Swartz just after this. Dreaming now there with We See You. It is 18 to 8. You're listening to The Mission. And on to tonight's second guest, now, on this show, The Mission, we, offer, uh, we often cover issues in and around police oversight or lack thereof. There is something inherently problematic with police investigating police on matters of conduct and criminality. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has long been at the, on the front line in calling for reform in this area, and hopefully it would seem that momentum is building with a letter to the Premier, Dan Andrews, and Attorney General, 
um, Jacinta Symes. The letter is co-signed by a series of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal organisations, which we'll go on to in a, in a minute. But to tell us all about it, we are joined by Sarah Swartz. You may have seen her on the 7.30 report last night on another matter that I'll ask Sarah about uh, towards the end of our discussion. Sarah is the Principal Managing Lawyer, Senior Advocate at Wiraway, Specialist Litigation Practice with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And I'm very grateful to say that uh, Sarah is on the line with us now. Sarah, welcome to the mission. Thanks so much, Daniel. Great to be here. The current system in terms of investigating, investigating police conduct and potential criminality only ends up investigating less than 1% of complaints made against police. Do you have any insight as to why the rate is just ridiculously as low as that? Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right when you describe the police accountability system in Victoria as one which is lacking. Um, I would say we have little to no um, police accountability in Victoria. Um, currently, um, IBAC, which um, not only has powers to investigate corruption, but also is tasked with the huge job of overseeing Victoria Police, investigates less than 2% of complaints that they receive. Um, and they refer those complaints, so around 98 to 99% of complaints back to Victoria Police, who um, largely find those complaints to be unsubstantiated. Now, there's a range of reasons why IBAC um, may not consider um, every single complaint that passes its desk, um, but what we know from IBAC's own commissioner is that even with more funding, IBAC has said that it could only investigate 4 to 5% of police complaints. And that would leave over 95% of police complaints investigated by Victoria Police themselves. Um, it, to us, shows really clearly that IBAC is not set up for the job of police oversight in Victoria and that we really need an independent body um, that is properly resourced, that is culturally appropriate to provide uh, police oversight in Victoria. Yeah, it's clear that the system as it stands at the moment is really not a system at all in terms of um, complaints against police. Um, and it's obviously people um, at the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country, Aboriginal people in particular, that end up um, in the crossfire of this kind of um, ineptitude. Uh, your uh, your CEO, um, uh, Narita Waite, has co-signed a letter to the Premier and has been supported by a whole range of different organisations such as JIRA, the Aboriginal Executive Council, Fitzroy Legal Service, Human Rights Law Service, uh, VATCHO, Uniting Church of Australia. The list goes on and on. And in that letter, what she calls for is a police ombudsman. Now, what would that look like? So a police ombudsman or an independent investigator of police at the, fore, at the front would be truly independent. Um, that means that investigations into the harm that police caused are con not conducted by police themselves. Um, that body would need to be well-resourced and the complaint would need... It, it would need to be complainant-centred and culturally appropriate. Um, what we see in our practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service 
is that whilst our clients are more likely to experience serious police misconduct, are far more likely to experience um, police violence and harm, um, they are less likely to make a complaint. And there's a good reason for that. IBAC's own recent report into complaints that had been made by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people showed that over half of the investigation that Victoria Police had done into itself had failed to collect or consider relevant information. Conflicts of interest were identified in a huge percentage of the files and those conflicts weren't properly managed. Those are things like police officers from the exact same police station as the police officer who's um, alleged to have committed misconduct investigating the incident. Um, and 73% of Aboriginal people who made complaints weren't updated on the investigation. So it's really important from our perspective that the complaint process is independent and that it be culturally appropriate and recognise that systemic racism within Victoria Police that so impacts our clients. There's nothing smaller than a small town when you have got a copper that is after you, you know, someone that you are constantly on their radar of. And so the 50% of complaints that are actually investigated by police that are involved in the complaint in the first place must be such a constricting thing for, for all people, but particularly Aboriginal people in, in regional Victoria. And I guess that's the reason why we see such a low rate of reporting in the first place. We haven't really even spoken about that. It's that most offences by the police, alleged offences by police, go under un, unreported because of these very issues. Yeah, that's, it. that's exactly right. I mean, myself at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, we represent a number of people who've experienced harm by Victoria Police. And often my clients will ask me, well, if I make a complaint about Victoria Police... Um, you know, how do I know that there won't be retribution? How do I know that the police officer who's down the road from me in the regional area I live um, won't pick on me or target me following a complaint? And unfortunately, with our current um, inve police investigation system where there is no independent investigation, we simply can't provide our clients with advice that their complaint is going to be thoroughly investigated, that it will be independently investigated and that they won't receive any retaliation. Um, I, I don't know if you're going to get to it, Daniel, but the, um, the report that was released today by the Victorian yeah. Inspectorate, um, that really scathing report on um, the IBAC's own handling and Victoria Police's own handling um, of uh, Emma, a person referred to as Emma, I mean, the deficiencies in that report leave us with little to no confidence that Victoria Police or IBAC could properly investigate our clients' complaints. Yeah, and, and there's the report that came out in The Age around the, the force's handling of a domestic violence case involving a service-serving policeman after police leaked the victim's escape plan to the perpetrator, who was also a police serving police officer, potentially putting her at risk of more violence and even even murder. There, there are so many holes and so many lives that are being damaged because of the inadequacy of this system at the moment. That you know, without wanting to be hyperbolic about this at all, Sarah, that, that you know, lives are at risk if something isn't done about this. Absolutely, lives are at risk, um, and. 
there is a mounting, you know, there's mounting evidence of not only, you know, people's lives that are being put at risk, um, policing is the entry point into the criminal justice system. Um, and I know that you said you were going to speak about the recent passing in custody of an Aboriginal man. And we see so often with deaths in custody, their first entry is police. And if there's no oversight of police, well, um, there's higher numbers of people entering into the criminal justice system and risking um, risking dying in custody. So I don't think that that's an overstatement at all. And we find ourselves in a situation where the current government and the current Premier in particular seems to have a fetish for giving the police association and therefore the police force anything they ask for. So we have more police now than ever, we have them better resourced than ever, and we have them better equipped and armed than ever. I don't pretend for a second being a police officer is an easy job, but when you're on the tail end of some of this, as the Aboriginal community often is, um, it must mean that you know communities across the state feel powerless in, in the face of some of this, I guess, overt power that has been given the police over the last eight to ten years in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we know, as you said, there are these huge systemic and cultural issues with Victoria Police, and yet the government has been spending more and more money on them with any eff- without any effort to fix those problems. Um, the Victorian government's doubled its spending on Victoria Police over the last decade, and Victoria Police now employ more people than any police force in Australia. And there's been a huge amount of spending on new weapons for police, like tasers. And it's our clients and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people which bear the brunt of this militarisation of the Victoria Police Force. Um, and we have reports from within the Victorian government itself, uh, the Victorian Auditor General, who have been scathing yeah. of the money that's been handed to Victoria Police. Um, Victoria Police has an outsized and huge impact on politics um, and in this state, and um, and they haven't even made any business case or been shown to be up to scratch for that huge investment. And so we have this huge quality spending with zero, zero oversight into Victoria Police, and they're just becoming a more and more powerful institution. Yeah, this isn't just um, you and I chewing the fat over this, uh, Sarah. There are numerous reports out now, like you said, from the Auditor General's office, um, various other reports about the place that really ring alarm uh, alarm bells at the at the at the power that the force has gained over the last few years. So if if you're listening at home and you you think we're just having a bitch in the moan, no, we're not having a bitch in the moan. There are some serious people that have looked into these matters forensically and come to some very scathing conclusions um, as to way as to the way that police are funded, the the um, reporting arrangements that they have in terms of, I guess. Um, reporting against the funds that are provided to them, but also the um, the system or lack thereof of investigation into police complaints means that um, the way things stand at the moment, we are living uh, with a police force that is very, very, very powerful indeed with very little or no oversight. Um, now, uh, Sarah Schwartz from uh, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, before I let you go, um, to another very, very pressing matter and a, and a depressing matter as well. 
Uh, Clinton Austin, um, his family has allowed us to use his name. He's a 38-year-old Gundijara uh, Wiradjuri man. He passed away in custody at Loddon Prison in Victoria uh, on the 11th of September. There is a coronial inquest into his death now, and you are working very closely with his family through the coronial process. Um, what can you tell us about what's gone down so far? Yeah, so at the moment um, we don't know uh, much about the passing of Clinton Austin. Um, there'll still be uh, the family um, are waiting on um, further evidence about what happened to him. Um, what we do know is that Clinton is the second Aboriginal man to have died in custody in Victoria over a one-month period, and the third Aboriginal person to have died in Victoria's prisons in less than 12 months. Um, I would, it's not an overstatement to say that there is a real crisis of death in custody in Victoria at the moment, um, and the Victorian government needs to treat those deaths in custody with extreme seriousness. Um, Clinton's brother, Sean um, Austin, his twin brother, has spoken beautifully um, about um, what an amazing person Clinton was, um, how he was a well-known artist um, and beloved by his family, his son, um, who he's left behind. And their family are seeking answers about why Clinton died. Um, they're seeking answers about whether the health care that he was provided in custody was adequate. They're seeking answers about why he wasn't um, granted parole when it appears that he was eligible for parole. Um, and they're hoping that the coronial inquest will answer those questions that they have. It's a, um, a very confronting process. You, you will hear throughout the course of it, no doubt, Sarah, some very harrowing evidence. And um, I wish you strength, but also, of course, wish the family strength. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on the show tonight. I know that you're very busy. And I know the whole of the uh, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is very busy, not only representing Aboriginal people, but advocating on our behalf as well. So thank you for your time. And let's get you back on the show to talk about these matters further in the future, because I have a feeling they're not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I think that's about right, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Now, you know, if Uncle Charlie is playing, then you know it is the end of the mission for this particular Tuesday evening. I'd like to thank both my guests, uh, Senator Dorinda Cox and Sarah Schwartz from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service for uh, for their time on some very important matters. If there are any issues that have affected you, there is the lifeline number, of course, 131114. Now, the usual superfluity crew aren't up and about today. They're probably exhausted from being burnt so many times last week by yours truly and a couple of others. So we've got Damien filling in for them this week. And as Damien waved to me, I, I remind Damien that I fade down at 8 o'clock on the dot with, with Uncle Charlie. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for tuning in once again. Um, until next week, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Ta-da.